Hi, I'm Spencer Ziegler. I'm Serena Halstead. And I'm Melissa Smith, and welcome to Data Lit Podcast. So today we'll continue our dive into the feedback series. We've been talking about feedback. We started with looking at what is feedback, where we sort of defined feedback, and then we looked at why we give feedback, why feedback is important. Then we went on to discuss, you know, who's involved, the players in feedback, you know, teachers, students, that sort of thing. And then today we're going to look at how we give feedback. So I want to sort of begin with a story about when I was giving my daughter Maya um, feedback on her music clip and some of the considerations that I had to think about in giving her feedback. I had to think about the goal of itself. So um, she actually volunteered to do the music clip for our podcast. And so when she did it, you know, we listened to it and, you know, Spencer gave me feedback to give to her. And so one of the things I had to sort of think about is herself as a learner, right? Uh, preserving her self-image as a learner. Uh, I had to think about our role or my role. Was it a mother-daughter? Was it like a teacher, a mm. student? I had to also consider like some of my own biases. I think I shared this with you, Spencer. I still have this feeling about her ability to create music without having taken like a formal music class, whereas yeah. I had to take a formal music class and I don't think I ever created any of my own music. And so just all, all of those sort of factors played in when trying to give her feedback. It was just interesting to see how all of those things go to play. So what are some things that you consider when deciding how to give feedback? For me, I think just, the relationship matters and the relationship has to come first. And without that, um, the greatest feedback in the world might not be received. And I think too, I was reading about flash feedback from a cult of pedagogy podcast. And they cited this really interesting Harvard study where Harvard did this study where they're, um, they had people go out and ask strangers on the street if they could borrow their phone to make a call. And they want to see what factors kind of influenced it. And it happened to be on a rainy day. And one of the variables they use is they had someone before asking to borrow the phone. They had them just say, oh, I'm sorry about the rain. Can I borrow your phone? And they found just that like one, such a tiny throwaway line that connected with a person increased their odds of receiving the phone by 425%. What? And to me, yeah, which I, I thought was fascinating. One, I don't think I'm giving any stranger my phone on, on the street. So that's probably just my own baggage and hang up. But just the idea of just the three seconds to say something so small to connect with a person before the request made such a drastic difference. And I think that's also the case with feedback. Before launching right into here's what you did wrong in your work, if you mm -hmm. take, even if it's just a few words to connect with them human to human, that it might make it all the more likely that they're going to actually be open to receiving it because they're more than just their work in that situation. They're a another person. So relationship matters would be what I think about. Mm, I like that, Spencer. Ah, So when what I think about when I'm giving feedback, so, and especially, you know, building that relationship, thinking about the student and no one to tell them that there is maybe something wrong with the work, but then you have to balance it. It's all about balancing what you're going to be telling the students. Um, you want them to improve, but then you have to remember that you start off with something negative, no matter how good the other things are going to be. Negative feedback tends to stick out in your mind more. Right. So some of the things that you should be considering is, all right, am I giving positive feedback? 
Um, it's not just about, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. When you're giving feedback, the things that you need to consider is that you need to strike a balance between both good and negative, right? Or I shouldn't say good and negative, but maybe positive, positive. and negative, right? Positive and negative. So that the student can know that, oh, I did this well. And I, and even thinking about it, I'm here with my little boy and I'm watching his um, reaction. So one of the things I consider too is that I need to observe the behavior, because even though the feedback is going to be helping them to improve the work, I need to observe what the student is doing when I'm giving that feedback. And it can tell me whether they're receiving it or not. So it sounds interesting considerations. And I think all of those sort of will come out as we discuss the how of feedback. So, Serena, I kind of when I was looking into um, researching for this topic, something that came out to me is when we were looking at how do you give feedback, there's sort of two main ways as, as teachers we give feedback, right? We give written feedback and we give oral feedback. And Serena, you sort of uh, talked about this in terms of your readability of your students, how that played a role when you use each of these formats. And so it was interesting to see that when we're giving written feedback, the goal there is to present feedback so that the intent is understood and that students feel empowered to act and not just follow orders. So I know that, you know, when I've done written feedback, I'd probably say good job or try harder. But understanding that that type of feedback, there is not enough specificity in it. So the learner, especially if it's um, feedback that they need to improve upon, they don't have enough to improve upon. So Brookhart also talks about not only paying attention to do to specifics, but considering the clarity, so is it clear enough, like you said, Serena, uh, making sure it's understood by the learner? Is there enough guidance so that they don't take it personally, but they are able to do the work? And then third, the timing, the choosing of the words and the phrases for the written feedback. So let's do an example. So Spencer, let's say you did um, an assignment, right? And I wrote on it, you won't find much on cargo boats. That's too narrow of a topic. You should pick something else. How would that feedback make you feel in terms of revising the work? Probably a little frustrated and I think directionless. I feel like I I wouldn't necessarily know where to go next with that feedback, only that my first attempt wasn't good enough. And that probably wouldn't make me too eager to make a second attempt. And I find, too, like in the classroom, we tend to there is a way that feedback tends to be only for the kids who need improvement. And we Mm. don't have much to say for the kids who met the target and to know that both students, if whether you met the target or didn't meet the target, both students sort of need um, feedback. Yeah, it's that that kind of growth and proficiency thing that you Uh want to kind of push for both. And some kids might need more pushing for the growth. Some people might need more pushing that proficiency. But balancing those, I think it's important. So one of the things I know I used to... um, try to stay away from whenever I heard that there's a need for written feedback is how time consuming it was. And Mm. so the recommendation is that some ways that we can provide written feedback is using comments and margins and annotations, um, using rubrics 
Um, I remember in one of our early sessions, we talked about the use of rubrics, again, either circling or leaving a space in rubrics to um, make some notes. And so that's some ways that we can use rubrics. And I know in our session with the digital learning coordinators, we'll also learn some ways of giving written feedback. What was also interesting is Hattie cautions us that when we are given written feedback, be sure that it is um, given only if it clearly improves student achievement and that it should focus primarily on the task and the process. And I thought that was an interesting thing because, again, that sort of tied back to two areas that you mentioned, Spencer, in the what that task and process. So yeah. what are some of your thoughts about just that, that caution that Hattie gives us in terms of give it only if it improves student achievement? So I'm. Um, I'll jump into that one, Melissa. So you mentioned something before about being um, specific, right? Mm -hmm. And I like what Hattie says right here, you know, focusing on the task and the process, because sometimes um, the student might do something and it is maybe well done, but that's not what you ask for. Right. And so sometimes we get off into the, you know, going down the winding road, but you did this great and you did that great. But what was the learning target? What was what, what is it that you really want to accomplish? So I believe when we're, especially for students, when we're giving feedback, we need to stick to what we ask them to do. Now, mm -hmm. not, that, not that I'm saying that students can't do something extra, but that extra should also, you know, improve on the task that was asked. It doesn't make sense. You ask the student, for example, tell me the process of building a boat. But then you start, for example, they, they drew something that maybe is a house. And you start talking about the beauty of the house when that's not what you ask them for. You ask them about the boat. So we have to be careful, make sure that we're sticking to that learning target, sticking to that focus. And if it's something that they did extraordinary based on what you were asking for, yes, we should comment on that and provide feedback to say, yes, you did well. So it sounds as though, Serena, one of the things that you are advocating for is I think sometimes as teachers, you know, when a ch um, you want to give feedback about ways they need to improve, but you're like searching for something good to find something good to say. Mm -hmm. And so you end up saying something good that is not related to the target. So it sounds as though you're advocating for even in those instances, when you have to advocate to say something good about the, make sure it's still tied to the work or the task mm -hmm. or the ask of the assignment and don't let it just be irrelevant just because you want to say something good. Yes, I like that. So the other part of feedback and how you give feedback is probably the one that as teachers, I think we overlook because it happens so instinctively and that's oral feedback. And so Hattie and Brookhart said that the same considerations that we have for written feedback, we should have for oral feedback and probably even more just because in oral feedback, you're right there in the moment. So when we're giving oral feedback, it's happening. It's that back and forth uh, with students. And so all of the considerations that we have for written feedback, they say that we should have for oral feedback and even more because it's happening right there, the immediacy effect of it happening, it's happening right there in learning that we need to be more intentional with what we're doing. And so the where and when are also key aspects of giving oral feedback because of the way it plays out, right? So are you giving, another consideration is, are you giving uh, individual feedback or are you giving group feedback? Like I know one of the things I kind of had to step back and think about is sometimes I'm giving what may seem like individual feedback, like I'm talking to you, Spencer, but mm -hmm. it's not like we're in a 
quiet private moment yep. we're in front of a whole class and so mm-hmm. sometimes you know I'm thinking I'm giving individual feedback but it's whole class because we're having a sort of public uh, display in front of the class so even even nuances like that you kind of have to take take into consideration when you're given individual one-on-one and you know they do talk about the privacy of that versus group feedback I think the other thing they talk about in when you're thinking about oral feedback, and I think it, it lends nicely, is again, the culture. So is it safe? Mm-hmm. Um, especially as kids get older, you know, their sense of self, who they are, which is why that was one of the considerations for me when I was having that conversation with my daughter about, you know, trying to preserve their sense of self. And as kids get older, they're more aware of themselves. So again, creating that safe space so that you can have individual and or group feedback, like you said, Spencer, again, when you're doing that individual, you know, building that relationship, I think is key. Like when those people met out, just something simple so that the person, you know how they say children don't know or don't listen unless they know that you care. Well, that thing yeah. is that building that relationship. I think that's also uh, culture is very, very key in that oral space. And so when we look at uh, just the individual feedback, they said that it's pretty powerful because it's directed to the learner. And again, it has that ability to indicate a level of care that it can be formal in terms of a student teacher conference. Like, so what you Uh, would often speak about Serena when you would have a student come to your desk or it could be informal where, you know, I'm just passing by a student. I look over work and I have a couple of words with them. Uh, What are some lessons learned about giving individual feedback from in your years in the classroom that you can share? So um, lessons learned. I learned to pay attention to the receiver. Whether it's um, in group setting or individual, pay attention to what the student is doing. Because, for example, if you're in a group setting and you're giving feedback, like for an assignment, I've graded it and I'm going to tell the students about it. Even though you're not calling the student name, they know exactly what they did or what they did good or not right. So even though you're not calling names, pay attention to the student within the group because they know that you're being you're, you're directing your feedback to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned to pay attention to that. And when I'm facing them face to face individually, I, as Spencer mentioned, also, um, you know, get that warm up going before you start telling them what is the students. At the end of the day, it's about improving the student work. And sometimes when we're giving feedback, we tend to get personal with it because like, for example, I taught you this, I taught you that. And I expect you be careful in that, because even though you think you did a good job, some what the student produced is what they got from you. Right. Right. So Mm -hmm. you have to be mindful that this is not about you. So you take yourself out of the space and direct the feedback towards how can you improve or how can I help you make it better? So don't just tell the students you need to do this. You need to do that. Ask the student, what can I do to make it better for you so that you can go and improve on your work? Hmm. I like that. And I'll focus for my answer on um, Serena. I feel like you nailed the kind of philosophical approach there, but just some of the practical approaches and that 
my time in the classroom. And then as I transitioned to teacher support, you know, IF, ITF, those kind of jobs, um, there's some really good technological tools that I think can blend the advantages of oral feedback and the advantages of written feedback. Mm. So for me, I think oral feedback can be really powerful because you can get your personality behind it. And sometimes tone gets lost through written feedback. Right. Um, whereas to me, I think written feedback can be really helpful because it's not quite as public as oral feedback sometimes is. And you can take a moment to kind of craft your words a little bit more carefully. Um, and I feel like a tool like Flipgrid, they're not a sponsor or anything. There's no no free ads on data lit, but like <laughs> Flipgrid seems like it's able to kind of pull from each of these where you can get, you can, you know, make virtual eye contact. They can see your personality. They can read your tone. So you can get that kind of personal connection in like you mm. can get with oral feedback. Well, at the same time, people aren't eavesdropping in it. You can do a private comment back to the student and you can kind of choose your words. Like I use Flipgrid for my digital portfolios course that I do and I give feedback. And about half the time I go through and record, I'm like, no, that was dumb. I need to redo that. I can't do that with like in person, but you're able to with some technological tools. So we'll talk about this more with when we talk to Sadie Hoover and DLCs about digital feedback, but find some tools that can help you to maximize the advantages of both oral and written feedback would be my, my lesson. So you have individual and you having group feedback and they say that group feedback is probably more powerful because, again, it saves time and it's useful mm-hmm. because, again, you can benefit from instruction. And so I think Serena talks about mini lessons or giving a review. I know for me, I use it as a regular part of my instruction, especially, you know, as I was dealing with older kids, you get a chance to just more. It seems more time efficient because, again, you can address more people. And to me, as a teacher, it felt as though my feedback can go further because I can hit or impact more students. So what are some ways based on your experience in the classroom that you were able to develop group feedback? So for the group feedback, you touch on something very important. Um, giving that group feedback, just thinking about that students within the group are at different stages of their work, right? So when you give that group feedback, even though um, maybe a particular feedback is for one student, another student hearing what you mentioned they can run with it. They say, oh, I need to put this here. I need to put that here. So with that group feedback, definitely other students are learning some do's and don'ts, um, wherever, whatever stage they are in their work. And I like group feedback for that whole lesson piece as well. Instead of like, you know, having students come to my table one by one, just give it out there to everybody. Everybody here is it at once. But, you know, keeping in mind that there are going to be some students who are way ahead. You have to just simply go back and take it, you know, in the, as an individual and um, take it individual with them and say, this is what I need from you. Right. But I like that whole group piece where I'm reteaching it. I'm saying it all over so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah, I would say um, I'm thinking this in kind of two levels. One a group of people giving feedback to like individual students and also the inverse of that teacher giving feedback to group students. So for instance, student performances is a great way to leverage the group feedback of the group of the class giving feedback to it. So, you know, we talked about in that who episode that Serena led, the peer assessment is really powerful. One, because it might be better, better received by the learners. And two, the act of providing someone else with that feedback is actually a form of assessment on yourself. Um, now you have to be very careful with say the graphic organizers, what, how you're asking kids to deliver that feedback to make sure that it is beneficial. Um, But I think that's a way with student performances. So instead of it being 
you know, a class of 30, one kid presenting, there's the only feedback they're getting from me. You can leverage those other 29 kids to make sure that the students that are performing are getting a lot of rich, useful feedback. I think also, you know, when it comes to after you as a teacher have collected data through some kind of assessment or assignment, um, you can think of group feedback as a way to maximize some of your time. So looking over the data, you have, say, an assessment on um, Treaty of Versailles and how that led to World War II or something like that. If you found that like 10 of the kids in the class were having trouble finding the cause and effect uh, nature there, then instead of going to each individual and having a you know, lesson, having those 10 kids together be it in person or through some of those technological tools and delivering it to all of them is going to really help you use your time effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, if after that assessment, though, you're finding like 20, 25, 30 kids were struggling in it, then that's actually a data point for you as an instructor that the issue, if you're thinking that ISIL model, might not have been with the learner, but with the instruction, the curriculum, and the environment. So then that's a great opportunity to model the reflection, identifying areas of improvement and enacting changes based off of that, that we've been talking about through this whole series. All right. So if it's a whole group problem, then you probably want to reflect on you as a instructor. Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> yeah, it really does. But it's a great <laughs> chance to show kids that like, you know, we all screw up and here's you, how you you're own so it right. make changes. You're so right, Spencer. I, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, some of the experience in the class. We have quite a few students and they get it. And when I, you know, go home and I think about it, I'm like, okay, I cannot use the same approach I did. Yes, I used yesterday. Mm-mm. I have to come with something new, some new way of teaching this. So, Yeah. That what you said just now, it's powerful. It sometimes yeah. needs to be on you. <laughs> I mean, I'd encourage us all to kind of put that on a stage for the kids. Mm-hmm. That process of reflecting like, oh, this hurts my pride. I made a mistake. I need to make changes. Because that's what we're asking kids to do with their own, with their own work, their own instruction. To okay. view mistakes as a way forward, not a roadblock. Right. And then there's a way our mistakes are a form of feedback and a way of yeah. learning and growing. As we come to the end of this episode, to sort of think of what are some key takeaways from these four episodes? I know for me, the biggest one I think that I keep talking about is that framework in terms of Hattie and I'm talking about while Oral feedback seems to happen, you know, in class and written feedback seems to happen, you know, outside of class or after an assessment that regardless of the framework that you use, um, it has to be received by the learner, right? The learner has Mm -hmm. to be at the center because, again, we've said this in several of our things. If if the learner is not taking in the feedback, owning that feedback, then it, it seems for not because they're not acting upon that feedback. What are some other takeaways for you guys? So mine's connected in order for them to receive that instruction that you want to avoid the feedback on the level of the task, just that was right or that was wrong or the self, you know, you are good or you are bad. And that's what comes naturally to us as humans. We think on those levels, but to take a moment, catch your breath and then push so that you're getting feedback on the um, processing level, you know, what steps they did to get to be correct or incorrect. And on the self-regulation level, you know, how they carry themselves as they're working through it that allow them to be successful or unsuccessful. So taking that moment to push for the processing self-regulation level is uh, my big takeaway. And my takeaway here is that, you know, one of the ways you're going to get that feedback um, to yourself as a teacher is that you need to 
ask questions, ask clarifying questions to the student, ask them, do you understand what I'm saying? It's not just about you pushing it onto them, but make sure that you're listening also to what they're saying. And even if they're not saying anything, just look at their reaction, right? Because their reaction can Mm. tell you whether or not they're understanding what you want or whether they're understanding what they need to go and do. So as we come to the end of this first half of our feedback series, I feel as though we were exploring like the theoretical things of feedback. And so in our second half of our series, we'd look at some practical aspects of feedback. Um, In our next episode, we'll have the digital learning coordinators come and help us understand ways of providing feedback, especially in this remote context. And then we'll be having an interview with uh, Paul Cancellari and Bill Ferreter, two Wake County teachers who have done some extensive work on the role of culture when giving feedback. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or further notes uh, for us, uh, don't forget you can always check out www.wcpss.net forward slash data lit. Again, we thank uh, my daughter, uh, Maya, for her music from Moore Square Magnet Middle School. And uh, that's it for this episode. So goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.